Yo, 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 podcast fans, Hype Nation, what it is, what it do, it's your boy, Raj Nation, founder of Startup Hype Man. Before we start this week's episode, quick announcement about the upcoming dates on the Hype Man Roadshow speaking tour. I will be at 2112, the creative incubator on the north side of Chicago, on Monday, October 15th for a presentation and workshop called How to Not Suck at Pitching Your Startup. I've been doing this around the country over the last month and a half or so. It's been going really well. Came off of Patriot Boot Camp recently, and holy crap, that was awesome. So I'd love to see you there. 2112, October 15th. It is in the afternoon at about 3 p.m. here in Chicago. Now, if you've been listening to the last few episodes, I've been talking about Ann Arbor that same week. We had to move it, so it is now on November 14th. We had a scheduling conflict, so Wednesday, November 14th, I'll be up at Ann Arbor, Michigan at the Ann Arbor Spark Tech Incubator. That one's at 9 a.m. bright and early. For tickets to any of these presentations slash workshops, again, I'd love to see you there. People who are walking out of this are saying, holy crap, holy shit, I feel like I know how to actually pitch my company now. I know how to tell our story. So it's great to see that. So if you want tickets to any of this stuff, just go to startuphypeman.com slash speaking, startuphypeman.com slash speaking, startuphypeman.com slash speaking. If you say it three times, people will remember it. <laughs> On now with today's podcast episode. Ready to do this closet interview? Yes. Welcome, everybody, to Startup Hype Man's Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, a.k.a. The Raj Nation. I am your show's host and the founder and creative force behind Startup Hype Man, helping startups everywhere build their hype by creating a message that sings. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help creative thinkers like you and I better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. It's about the mindset, processes, and strategies to help you build a badass company. Now, before we dive into today's conversation, I would like to extend an invitation to join our tribe at StartupHypeMan.com. Enter your email address there, and you will never miss another episode of this show, getting an email in your inbox every single week when we drop new episodes on Mondays. You'll also get my weekly thoughts, strategies, and ideas on how to build up your hype and create a raving fan base. All right, let's dive in now to this week's conversation of Discover Your Inner Awesome. Today on the show, we welcome Monica Kang. Monica is founder and CEO at Innovators Live. Monica, welcome to Discover Your Inner Awesome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Our topic today is how do you build a culture of innovation? Now, your company is called Innovators Box. So I'm curious, why is this on your mind? Why is this important to you? It's on my mind because I feel that creativity and innovation has become such a buzzword and yet so little <laughs> is understood of on the practicality because when you ask employees, many would say that they might see a slogan, they might feel that, you know, some people promote, but it's not really trickling down in every single employee level. So I'm curious why we say that it's important, but it's not happening enough. And how can we help more people understand how it's possible? 
Yeah, definitely. I think it is something that is, it's, it's nice to say, it's convenient to say innovation. And then it's like, well, what are you doing that's innovative? Well, we Change have a topic. Yeah, <laughs> we have a suggestion box, right? Okay, so before we dive into all of that, I'm curious to know, where did you grow up? And how do you feel that uh, impacted your personality? Ooh, curious how we interpret that question. <laughs> As someone who has grew up, uh, grown up in multiple places, I think different stages of my life, that question would trigger different answers. Um, I would now say I think having lived half of majority now of my life, probably more, uh, both mostly in the States, uh, growing up in DC, Virginia area, as well as uh, part of my time in Korea as being Korean American. And I say, going back to the personality, that's where part of my duality came about. Um, I think I've always been the happy, optimistic, uh, kind of cheerful personality and curious one. Um, I don't know if I've actually ever shared this in a podcast, but I usually ask a lot of questions to my parents of what I was always like when I was a kid. I think there's something interesting about what you can learn, what your genuine reactions and thoughts were before you had societal perceptions and biases. And I remember um, how it took me a long time to rediscover that original part of Monica curiosity because I was shut down when I went to Korea society where it's very conformative, um, conservative, asking questions when someone says, do you have a question in class? It's kind of seen more as the wrong thing to do and it's wrong impression. And I remember not saying anything at school for about a year. This is a very different personality. But there were a lot of things I also learned in Korean culture, which was very important. Um, and so the person I am today is a mix of both, which I'm extremely proud of, but took time to, you know, kind of decipher that. So I know that was probably a simple answer that you might have been looking for in that question, but there's a lot of layers to it. And I think often people underestimate the complexity of human experience that you build upon. And it's not just one thing that triggers who you become, who you are. So are you a first generation, um, what's the word, first generation American? Yeah, first yeah, generation Asian American. American. Yes, yes. I was uh, officially born in D.C. My family used to live in Fairfax, Virginia. With that said, I'm also first generation. Yay! How did that, we've had the interesting um, advantage in some ways and challenge in other ways of having to you know, navigate things for the first time, not having parents who grew up here who knew how this is the way things work. This is how you do this, et cetera, right? Like my dad wasn't really playing catch with me in the backyard. I think he tried a couple times, but he didn't grow up watching or playing baseball. He had to like learn it as I was learning it. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel being a first generation American? Um, I guess, what was your, what, here's my question. What was your, um, reaction to that as you were growing up in this country were you accepting of it was it confusing to you were you rejecting it it was always confusing <laughs> <laughs> um i think it was even more confusing because by the time i was growing up quite american i left america i was in korea society so i did uh, elementary school middle school in korea my parents actually stayed there and i came back to the states to study abroad quote quote from their perspective, to back to the States. So I was the American on paper, but treated as international student when I came back to high school. So yeah, it was identity crisis altogether because I had identity crisis being a Korean who was not a Korean and living in Korea society when I was younger. Um, 
But then as I was spending time here, I, was, I wasn't exactly like the Korean American because high school, you know, with, on top of all that high school sensitivity, <laughs> it's kind of the borderline of where people think more about that identity aspect. And I realized I'm not really like the Korean Americans or Asian Americans because I haven't really spent time up until that point in the States most recently when I came. So I didn't feel as American, but that I spoke without an accent, but without understanding any of the slangs and jokes. <laughs> and <laughs> I wasn't really truly Korean either because I didn't like certain things that they did because I felt in their eye more American. So I didn't fit in any box. And I think that kind of concept of not fitting anywhere exactly because it just became the way I am, I think was always kind of both a frustration and curiosity and a hunger of why is it that I have to fit in a box? Why is it that I just can't be who I am? Like, why can't I like this and that? Why can't I just be Korean and American and be international? Like, and then on top of that, I worked in Europe and then back in Korea and then back to the state. So that whole circle even made it even more confusing because when I was in Europe, they're like, oh, you're clearly American because your accent's American. <laughs> and then when I'm back in this uh, Korea, then it's like, oh, you're the American girl because, you know, you're Korean, American, and then so it was only like, long story short, after all that mixed experience, uh, like it's only probably been more in the past, I think, six, seven years that I felt more American having spent more time among Americans doing more politic work uh, when I came back to D.C., having a more kind of clear, defined career. Um, but prior to that, like literally, I, I felt like I was having a new identity crisis every other few years in a way that I think the most troubling thing was just going back to like, what's most genuine? Is it that I'm rejecting something? And I think I, you know, I appreciate your question on, you know, those different core reactions, because I think it's natural that we feel both. And I think that was when that third child kind of perception of third world country was booming. Like, it's like, you know, do you really associate with one identity? And frankly, I also didn't really appreciate when there were a lot of some Asian Americans who were just so rejecting their culture. And I'm like, well, but that's also who you are. Like, you can't really deny, like, I can't deny that I'm going to be darker than my skin or lighter than my skin. And that's just who I am. But how do I make it as who I am as a person, not something that's still impressed by me? And it, it took a lot of courage, but um, I'm extremely grateful of everything that helped me now who I am, and I'm extremely happy of who I am. But uh, it was a journey. It was a journey. <laughs> well, and you know, the, the phrase you use, identity crisis, I relate to that a lot. It's something that I, I, I use that exact phrase when I think about this topic as well, this idea of first generation, uh, because there's a lot of dissonance, right? It's just like you, like I've had the experience of it's like a great irony that when you're in America, you have to, I'd have to identify as Indian, but when I'm in India, I have to identify as American. Yeah. <laughs> you're not Indian in their perspective. Right. You're like, excuse me. No, sir. <laughs> Your accent's so, very different in the way you talk. Yeah. So, and, and I think that creates, right. It, it does create that identity crisis that if you were, you know, born in this country, um, you know, if you're not, you know, certainly parents or, or, children of immigrants who don't really feel that. And I think it forces us to have to question our own value, not in a bad way, but like actually challenge and think about and deeply question what yeah. is our value set? What's our identity? Who are we at from a very young age? And for me, it was something that 
growing up, it was like with the family and stuff, I was all into the cultural stuff. When I wasn't with the family, it was like, tried to tuck it away as much as possible, didn't want to get questions about it, things of that nature. But, you know, I I bring up that story because I'm curious, you know, to hear your side of it as well around like, when I look back at that, I think, you know, while I wish I wouldn't have been that way, I think what it somehow forced me to do was figure out how to talk to different people in different ways and get along with different groups of people from a very early mm-hmm. age. Mm-hmm. And I would, so yes. And on top of that, I think it, what it forced me to do is truly really raise better self-awareness and reflect a lot. I remember so many years crying all the time <laughs> different in different closets, <laughs> different, different, um, uh, sceneries, uh, Boston, it was Charles river, Geneva. It was Geneva Lake, <laughs> DC. It was Potomac river. Somehow I ended up in all these like river cities. The, I was the, contributing the, the to water, the river, yeah. river <laughs> water volume. Well, is there something is some, like oh, empathetic about, you know, seeing a volume of water and realizing how tiny you are. And I'm like, maybe my stress is not a big deal. I just need <laughs> to let it out. Maybe I'm part of this motherland of everything. <laughs> um, but it was just, um, I, I, I think it was extremely high pressure. And I I used to joke about, I think even up until grad school that like nothing felt as pressured as my time at high school. Cause I think the starting point of that identity, cause I feel that when you were in elementary school, even though you might have struggled, it was, you were so young. Like I probably went through a range of shockwaves, but um, I guess, you know, still short term memory, like your happiness is so much bigger. So the bad high school is really when you step into that high school. Yeah. And then that was really the first time that I was away from my parents. Um, And that awareness is even stronger because you don't have someone that you can just talk it out and realize you have a comfort space. There was no comfort space until you saw your parents again, at least in my mind. Um, And that was only now not every day, but like now once or twice a year, which was a very drastic change as someone who grew up in a very close family hold. But I'm, like I said, I, going back to your point, like I wouldn't be in a deeper, richer version of complexity of who I am without a lot of those things. Um, I might have, you know, I might have that original characteristic, but that push of needing to grow would have been a little less because I might have been more comfortable. Right. And um, as much as I, wouldn't want to suffer go through what I've gone through, but um, I'm grateful that it made me who I am. Richer for the experience, I might say. <laughs> yes. Sounds okay. like a nice book title. <laughs> <laughs> Let's fast forward a little bit. Um, you're the first person who's ever been on this show who has had a title at one point in their life of nuclear non-proliferation. Ah, thank you. Okay, so... And and correct me, like what is what was the actual title, and what <laughs> was involved in nuclear non-proliferation? So it's a big jargon of basically saying um, it was a place where you know you have a bunch of experts and different folks working how to prevent um, nuclear weapon from spreading, or if it's developed already and have the science, how do you make sure it does not go to the bad hands? Or if it was accidentally scattered around, how do you make sure that if folks from civilians to military folks accidentally pick it up, how, what are the steps that you need to take to, one, not accidentally go radioactive and 
become a disaster? And two, what are the steps you need to know to verify where it's from? So like that part of the forensics. And so under that umbrella of nuclear nonproliferation, there's all these different tiers of focus that different expertise do. Like, are you on the defense side? Are you on the research side? Are you on the security side? Are you on the side that's like going out and about educating folks? And I was more on the a particular niche on that for nuclear forensics and counter nuclear smuggling um, on the policy angle. And what that meant was that um, out of all that entire cycle, there's already quite a bit of materials that's scattered around the world, unfortunately, due to all the war crisis that we had in history. Um, and not everyone's educated. So if you accidentally do truly find something, what do you need to do? And what's so fascinating, and I think why I got intrigued of that, uh, route in field was that to be truly successful in deactivating or you know safely moving from one place to another you need at a bare minimum six to ten plus people talking and working together in a way that actually is safe and if one person screws up miscommunicates, misses a phone call, then you don't know what could happen. And that's kind of scary to think about. And I realized, well, that teaches the lesson of importance of communication, being aware, being flexible, and just being prepared. And what you find is that even in the States, not all policemen and border security is going to be aware of that. So then how do you educate? So then it becomes a more scalability question of like, well, how do you then, do you have to, do you have a policy where everyone just reads a manual, but then if it's a manual, then not everyone's going to be interested. And so like that whole philosophy of like, how do you then go about became of curiosity. And so on the specific what I did was I, I did a handful of project management and policy work on helping these scientists, border security people and the politicians and kind of the government security kind of working all together. And so I was in that middle realm but understanding that whole cycle was a fascination and on top of that what was so interesting is just seeing the lack of um people who just um did not know what to do with the next generation question and so that people problem was something that i hence got curious of like well it becomes so hard to become an expert especially a scientific importer security expert and they couldn't figure out how to convince the next generation to invest time to do this if, um, if it takes this long and they're not retiring. So that whole generational kind of cycle of pipeline was then my curiosity. And the whole thing of why I got interested in that whole field in the first place was because I realized there was, going back to that identity, a lack of diversity. Uh, I was tired of seeing all people talking about Northeast Asia security. And they're all white male. And I'm like, well, I'm surely there's some Asian experts, right? <laughs> Who can talk about North Korea and South Korea or like, you know, Korea Peninsula or like Japan, Northeast Asia. That was at least the starting point that I had most awareness. And I did not like, and it bothered me that, you know, maybe I, I you know, I'm living in two worlds. Maybe I can help. Uh, maybe I, there's clearly more people like me who must be interested. And so that curiosity of going back to that identity and triggering that maybe that background can exactly help me got me into it and then realizing well what more can I do maybe then I should focus on the niche and I had a lot of great mentors who advise you're always going to be Asian like do you only want to just really do Asian or be a functional expert and that's kind of how it led so that was a loaded maybe answer into your question but it really I guess a lot of simple things get me thinking through those layers of things because that's how you usually make my decisions as well is that where you started to think about the concept of innovation 
or were you not even yet thinking about that? Oh, not not necessarily. I think what really triggered me was realizing that I um, have not. Um, I have. Um, I'm trying to think. I have been aware about all the different layers and have been noticing, but I realized that the patterns were quite consistent. And it was only until I got extremely depressed at my last job, which happened to be at that, you know, that particular field, that was really struck me in realizing that maybe I need a I need to figure out a different way. And it just it was more kind of reactive. I didn't realize what the solution was. I just did things that was helping me. And then I found out when I was tracking back, I was like, you know what? Actually, what really connected all of that was creativity. But nobody really taught me or explained it to me in that way, but it's made so much sense. Mm. When you left that job, you, you dabbled in different parts of the startup world for a little while. How does Innovators Box then come about? So it came about because as I was um, getting unstuck in my job and learned to relove the job that I was getting quite stuck, um, I realized that, you know, maybe and recognizing that creativity was indeed a solution. What really helped me, well, let me rephrase it. What really helped me relove my job that I felt stuck was recognizing that it was really in part of me. So go, actually, identity crisis is a perfect example since we actually started the conversation on it. A big part of how we feel, I think, that pressure of crisis in the field of identity also quite circles back to who we are as a person and how we feel about it. Yes, it is part of society expectation. It's part of what we are, how people respond to us, but it's also how we feel and respond to that. So a lot of it is connected to how we respond and we react. And I realized that's quite connected to creativity. Um, in the work we see, I could be doing the same Excel job and I could see this as being boring or I could figure out a way how to make this a fairly cool adventure. Like what if I had to be like a ninja and figure out this Excel secret and try to report this without trying to crack it and it becomes so much more fun. And I made it so much, everything so much more fun. And I realized the secret was me building that mindset and integrating creativity. And so um, my original goal was trying to do both. So I, I started my company, Innovators Box, recognizing that there must be a way I can help more people through a company like Innovators Box um, and started my company while I still was at my old job for about eight months. And it was only after a point of realize, you know, it didn't make sense for me to do paid client projects and take a day off from work. <laughs> 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 and then running, running out of vacation days just didn't make sense. I will probably drop the quality in either one. And so that's how... But it's a good thing to start it while still getting paid elsewhere, right? Oh, yes. I highly recommend any entrepreneurs or people who are thinking about doing their own thing of not... Like, yes, you, can, you should be totally excited about recognizing whatever you want to create, but you should not... <laughs> proactively want to just quit like if you can stay as long as you can in your other job and continue to use this as research and development and test out and do everything you can do that like as long as you're not like hurting the other job or hurting yourself and delaying your launch with innovators box the i guess can you give the overview of what you're taking to companies what is the product or service you're providing them with 
the products and service we offer are uh, ranges of different educational workshops, speaking, facilitation, uh, and then different card games. Because the essence is that to change and help build creative mindset, I realized that it has to be tangible, <laughs> easily usable, and integratable but also something that's fun and experiential. So to make that all happen, in addition to the in-person kind of elements of um, doing a lot of interactive workshops and kind of making the creative experiential through the activities that we create, we also continue to create these different product lines and card games because I want to truly show that you can create your own creative moments and make that into a whole culture thing by yourself. And it could start with one question, asking one question differently at a time and realizing how you change your mind and perspective, how you change your habits and think about how you can be more creative holistically. Um, a good example that I often bring uh, for people to quantify it is think about how we started changing our way of thinking about health. Health technically is not tangible. Right? How do you know someone is 100% more healthier than, you know, 200% than the other person? Like, technically, it's not like Apple Store. Like, it's not very, it's not easy. And yet, we've gotten better. Like, we can now measure health in a physical way. We can tell clearly, like, okay, you can run more than the other person. You're not injured, right? You also have mental health, and there's better awareness and understanding on that. But you also know your physical energy health. Like, you can just literally tell when you're more energetic and when you're more exhausted, there's so many layers like that in creativity. And I think the um, pity was that for a long time, I think we often only just saw it as art. But when we start to see the layers of it, see the way you think about it, just the thinking, creative thinking, right? The way you create, maybe that's the creative results, uh, whether that's in traditional arts or the Excel sheets and the emails that you do. Maybe it's in the communication, the way you talk to other people and relate. Um, and just the way you think. Um, just like health, you can't envision someone to be healthy just because you've done one thing one day. And I think it's mind-blowing that we still have that philosophy about creativity. And it's time that creativity and innovation, I, I hope that it's time now we move on from that. It's 2018. <laughs> yeah, well, so, you know, as we get more into the weeds here of this topic of how do you build a culture of innovation, let's use this as a starting point. Um, if we're going to explore this, Let's define it. So how okay. do you define innovation? Back with more Discover Your Inner Awesome in just a moment. But first, are you an early stage startup? If so, you're probably running on the messaging treadmill where you're trying to figure out how to pitch your company, how to tell the story, how to communicate, market, and sell this thing that you've built. But for every step you take forward, you get pulled back one just like you're on a treadmill because you're either too in the weeds too technical, or your attention is pulled in too many different directions. Oh, and on top of that, you're facing the everyday mental crisis of being an entrepreneur where you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe I am crazy. Maybe I should have listened to my family and just gotten that safe and secure six-figure job. Guess what? It's time to get off the treadmill. Introducing Hype Man Academy, my brand new affordable equity-free virtual accelerator designed to build a marketing playbook for your startup so you can confidently pitch investors with a clear and compelling message and go out and market and sell to get your first 10 or 20 or 30 customers. Hype Man Academy is a weekly live online workshop where you work alongside your fellow founders, support and help one another, and get one-on-one -on -one access with me through virtual office hours. 
For information on joining the next cohort, visit StartupHypeMan.com slash Hypeman hyphen Academy. That's StartupHypeMan.com slash Hypeman hyphen Academy. Fill out an application and let's discuss. Back now to our regularly scheduled programming. Let me start with creativity because that's easier. Creativity is uh, in the essence form uh, thinking differently. And as a person, it's really getting to a point where you have that genuine aha moment where you have the flow of creative thinking. And that often happens when you are genuinely really dug into and you're thinking through, I'm thinking myself as well, the act of thinking differently. And to do the act of thinking differently, you have to be curious and you want to genuinely care about it. That's when creativity of the act happens. Innovation happens when you do multiple steps of creativity and you create something as a result of it uh, because creativity in its sense is also the thinking but also the act of small creation. Innovation happens after multitude of multiple creativity because you have to have multitudes of small layers of creativity, thinking and the small actions that lead to the bigger I. And a more successful I would be in the case of you know, whether that's a bold approach or a slight appro- bold approach, that it actually applies and it impacts a large number and encourages them to do something differently that has not been. To make that all happen, it really starts going back to that first line of curiosity, taking the courage to be curious and try something different, which is requiring you to think differently in your first essence as your thinking process. So it goes back to that mindset piece. Does that help? A little bit more on bringing out a different layer. Let me me replay back to you and you tell me if I'm on point with this. So innovation is the result or essentially the amplification of creative acts. So it is when you've had a series of creative acts, now now the magnitude of that creativity has increased significantly. And innovation is the, is the magnitude, is the amplification of all that creativity, creative acts built up over time. Mm-hmm. So innovation is not making one decision on one day. No. Innovation is a cultural shift. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can vibe with that. <laughs> what do you see is the reason or reasons for lack of creativity, lack of innovation? with the companies you work with and you work with a lot of fortune 500 companies and nonprofits uh, government what's going on that they are not as creative as they can be therefore holding back their own ability to be innovative number of things um i think two things stands out one unfortunately the way we've been taught in school the way we've been taught what workplace is and expected to be makes it very hard to be okay with being different. So yes, people say that, you know, we want to hear more new ideas. (laughs) We want to try something different. But if you really think about like since elementary middle school, like, you know, we had multiple choices. You pick the wrong, you pick the wrong answer. I'm like, sorry, that's the wrong answer. Um, And I think that mindset has been so grown into that workplace gradually as well. You know, as a marketer doing something different than a marketer is like, excuse me, that's not why we hired you. Um, and you're frowned upon. And I think 
it becomes even a vicious cycle because in essence, most people, whether they study or do work or become a leader, want to do good, right? They, they essentially started because they want to do good. They cared about the work they do. They want to make a positive difference. They were hungry. Maybe they just needed to get the job for financial reasons, but there was a reason why what triggered them. What's unfortunate is that because of that, it's also natural that they would want to do things that's going to help them succeed, not hurt them. So if the gut reactions that they receive is that, uh, excuse me, that's the wrong answer, that is not what we're looking for, then it's natural that you don't want to do it because it's like, well, they told me it's not. So maybe I should just not do it or maybe I'm just not fit. So it's, I should then focus on the things that I'm doing well. Maybe it's that Excel or email or whatever that is. So I should just focus on that because they're telling me and giving me that clear feedback that it's no. And then after a certain point, you start shutting down and you get used to wanting to focus only on the things that you know you get good result because your intention is to want to do good. Um, and I think that that is one thing that gradually leads to it. And second, Eve, um, what I found is that even no matter how flat an organization is, I think people underestimate how that hierarchy and that team player of people play a role because let's say they have less of that problem. Even at a team where the leader says, you know, Monica, I don't understand. Like, I want my teams to be creative. I'm giving all these resources. I'm giving them support. But if you ask from the employee level, that's not what they still see. And I think part of the challenge is because there's not enough education and understanding of how do you then communicate support when, yes, you do have a clear line you can't cross. So yes, from the leader's perspective, maybe it's like, I do want to support my team to be creative, but I clearly know that this is the line that we cannot cross in the budget. This is not, this is the timeline that we cannot cross if we want to accomplish this goal. And we don't have time to like mess around and try all these different things. And so I guess in their unconscious mind, they would say comments like, well, we don't have time to do that. We can't afford to do that. And what I now inform and kind of coach leaders as well as the employees is, it's important to rethink about that feedback loop. And it's okay that you didn't feel comfortable because unfortunately we didn't have a much awareness and understanding in how to do that. But if you took even a positive, like, yes, this might be the boundaries, let's say the budget, this is the boundaries of the budget, but at the bare minimum, is there an opportunity you can have an open conversation and say, hey, so today we're going to just spend at least 30 minutes exploring everything we can. We might still need to decide later on to go to this other decision because of the budget. Um, and maybe that might be the conclusion, but giving people the comfortable space to explore and sharing their boundaries can empower them to know that, oh, that person's not shutting down because they don't like my ideas or they just don't like me or they don't think I'm creative because it becomes very personal. And that coaching from the executive side, as well as coaching from the employee side of recognizing that, okay, so if you feel like your leader is not helping you, how can you communicate back up? You shouldn't be just waiting until you get permission. And so those are kind of the two challenges that I see most visibly. One, hence that societal um, training that we have not received and understanding how to be creative genuinely. And two, even with the good intention, how it has been hard because that feedback loop is not clear. Now, that makes a ton of sense to me for these larger organizations where things are more rigid, right? It takes even making a small decision, you have to go through so many layers of approval. What about in the startup world where these companies that are doubling in size, like, you know, every six months, things are way more malleable. Where do you see they are failing at innovation or are they not fit? Are they innovative automatically? 
I would still say the feedback loop and the lack of understanding that is a crucial element that is extremely hurting leaders. Um, I don't know how many leaders I often talk to because who, sh who underestimated because as a startup founder, you are under even more pressure, right? You have less resources, less time, and you're trying to get everything so much faster. So you're technically with four or five times more pressure. So on top of that, I think, so, and I relate to this because, right, so I, essentially, you know, we're still a small company and we're like, you know, we're a small team. And I'm learning through my own challenges and experience of recognizing that, you know, my expectation is always up there <laughs> and it's not getting fast enough so that, you know, it's the impatience can be a positive trigger in a way that it's pushing you naturally to want to work harder, to get better results, to have that conversation, to want to say like, hey, we're not being innovative enough. Maybe we need to do more. But I think that consistency and making it a shared ownership and learning and not having that can really hurt because you're probably constantly growing as a leader and learning what needs to happen. But half of the time you also know, you don't know what you need to do because, or like what needs to happen first, because you're learning through it, which is a great thing because you're expanding so quickly and growing so fast. But it's important to give that benefit of doubt within your team members and helping them understand that you want them to grow in their own ways and that make it clear what are the boundaries that they can be okay failing and trying and what's the boundaries that at a core minimum you want to still see their expertise so that you make that clear. When that communication and expectation is not clear, I think the disappointment only becomes bigger. And I think on top of that, that startup, innovation, uh, startup culture is expected to be innovative and it's okay to fail fast kind of culture makes it even harder because it sounds like you're not working hard enough. Um, and so I would recommend to founders on that stage, you know, really push yourself and think about and take a moment to reflect. You know, how am I communicating? What's the feedback loop I'm creating? And what's the expectation I'm building? And really see among your team members how they're responding. And if there needs to be an adjustment, how will you work it out? That will take some, you know, maybe a couple meetings, a couple initiatives. But sharing talking about that and sharing ownership so it's not top down even at a startup stage is is extremely critical um and so that would be one thing that i would share as an emphasis can you expand a little bit more on that point you made there towards the end about where sort of the the um the motto of startup cultures fail fast but then it, you said it creates this idea that you're not working hard enough unless you're failing fast is that what you meant yeah, I think there's sometimes the pressure that, you know, you're not, if you're not, the pressure of needing to work harder. Mm. Like I remember, at least for my case, I remember the few months that I did my business full time was the most stressful time because I felt like I should be doing 10, 10 times more because mm. I had more, 10 more hours. Like I didn't have my nine to five anymore. It was when you first yeah. transitioned to doing it full time. Yeah, I had more hours, so I should be doing more. Why in the world is this not happening? And on top of me feeling that, you know, I could feel that, you know, me thinking about that and impact my team members. Oh, that directly translate, right? And then two, they then also, um, if they are, if I had more executive team members who thought in that mindset, well, that's going to have a ripple effect in the way how we do everything. And, um, I fear that that mental of just fast, fast, fast 
stops leaders from thinking about that it is okay to pause <laughs> and take a moment to breathe and rethink about really what happened instead of just rushing through it because of the pressure mm. for the sake of rushing. That is not innovation. Innovation requires, like, you can't have innovation without self-reflection because you can't be creative without self-reflection. Um, like, think about all the people, like, is anyone who's listening, like, take a moment to really think about who are the top three people that you really admire who's uh, innovative. They're probably also the most reflective and, like, thoughtful person because they really think through a lot and take the time to learn and yes, at times rush, but they know when to stop and pause. Mm. If you're rushing, 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 I'm sorry, but you're going to not only just burn out, the, even the greatest idea you have, you're going to probably kill it because you're not thinking about all the other things you could probably integrate. And some of my best products actually came about because we kept changing until the last minute, which was stressful, but we kept being open about other possibilities up until the very last moment. Um, if I just rushed to like, let's just get it done. Let's not put anything more then I, we would probably not have the same products and I would probably be disappointed eventually. So yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's not just, I mean, one of the common notions is just ship it, just ship it, just ship it, but you can't, yeah. you have to still be thoughtful in that process. And, and, uh, you know, I, I like what you said there about if you're always rushing, you never actually think about what you're doing. And, and I think, you know, this is actually just recently, I was speaking at this event here in Chicago called the Enterprise Sales Forum. And, you know, I was speaking all about how to have the right pitch and how to message what you're talking about. Because in, in sort of the same notion as what you're saying, if you're not being mindful and thoughtful about this stuff, you'll create false metrics for yourself, right? Like as a, like a salesperson, you could think, okay, I did my job this week. I did a hundred outbound dials, but if it was a hundred dials to the wrong people or a hundred dials with the exactly wrong message, yeah. it doesn't matter. Are you going to feel good because you hit a, a number that was you know, arbitrarily thrown in the air? What if you had 20 good dials to the right people with the right message? So let me add to that because that metric example that's a perfect example of how I think a lot of companies, whether they are a startup or a big company, do the practice of measuring the wrong thing. They're only focusing on that hundred. It's like, we just need for you to, let's say, generate hundred ideas. But they're not thinking about like, what if you actually gave them a little bit more time, a little bit more like encouraging message, mm. clear feedback. Maybe they would only generate 20, but it might be actually the best 20. You know, they would have actually maybe been more excited to generate the 20 instead of like being exhausted and unhappy generating that 100. Or maybe they would have been more likely to actually execute that one thing because they took the courage to actually navigate all those hundreds and took the time. Maybe they studied thousands of lists and chose those top 10 that they decided to reach out and actually win. Deal. That's so much more empowering. But just thinking about, no, that's not big enough. It's not 100. So no, you failed. We're not going to reward. We're going to reward the one who did 100. Mm. that just demotivates the whole people, even the one who actually brought good results. Like, well, I was never rewarded. So that's another actually feedback loop that I share how important it is, making that clear reward loop in addition to feedback. If you're rewarding the people who just do the 100 calls, but not thinking about the person who might have taken the courage to call 30 very different people, maybe they didn't still get any sale, but they actually now raised awareness to 30 new people who have never heard of your company. That's still 
a good courage that we should celebrate and think about, well, what can we do differently? How can we keep expanding? That change of mindset then requires, as a leader's perspective, taking having that eye to recognize. But if you're always rush, 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 fail fast, that's okay. You're going to miss all these cues that's right in front of your face. Two more questions here before we wrap up. First one I want to ask you is, do you feel innovation, the idea of an innovative culture, is the root of it communication or is it structures that are put in place? I would say you need both. If you, well, let me rephrase it. You will, it would be helpful to have both, but it would certainly fail if you don't have good communication. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess, I guess, I guess a different way to put it. Yeah. Someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, we need to get an innovative culture here. The first thing we should do is, I mean, after call Monica, the first thing we should do <laughs> Is it we need to look at our processes or is it we need to look at how we're communicating to our people? Mm, Yes, because, yeah, between the two, what you want to certainly think first is how that communication is. Um, I would say even before communication, you have to remember that it's all connected to people. You can't get innovation without being creative, but the active, where creativity and innovation comes from, it's from people. If you are stressing your people out, I'm sorry, but you're not going to get the same result when they are being encouraged, when they are positively challenged. Challenge is good. I, I think people forget that like they just perceive stress and, you know, as a completely always negative thing, but like healthy doses of stressors are good because we're challenging. We want to grow. Like just going back to our earlier conversation, identity crisis. I never knew that could be a connected point until our talk. Well, every startup is in <laughs> crisis, by the way. <laughs> That's true. Like, cause as a company, you're constantly growing. And I think, you know, you'll probably all agree that, you know, without any of that, you wouldn't be the same company or the same leader or the same person you are. But there are certain degrees that it becomes a whole traumatizing experience and you need a little bit longer to heal. And there are certain moments that helps you at a healthy dose. So remembering that to have even that good communication, you have to remember that it's people-centric. And what, what that means for you is going to be very different as an individual for the company. So it's not cookie cutter. And please don't do the step of like, oh, I've seen X company do this and we're similar size, so we should just do this. No, that company has its own identity. You have your own identity. Find what is right and best fitting for your company culture, which means you have to go back to communication, the people, and see who, who's the people that we have. Why is it that this is the right because of the right people that you have in front of you? My last question here before we wrap up is, Take a much smaller startup, founder, co-founder, maybe just the founder, maybe the developer. Is this an accurate statement? I'm going to take on the persona of a startup founder here. Is this an accurate statement? I have a startup. I'm innovative. Is that that an automatic truth that if you start a company, it's automatically innovative? No. I'm sorry. (laughs) Earth shattering. I'm sorry. Um, You have created a product and the act of creating that is innovative, but that doesn't automatically make you an innovative person 365 days. Just Mm -hmm. like you've mastered one amazing 
exercise routine does not make you healthy 365 days. I like that analogy. And it might be that, you know, you were only able to create, create that or, you know, it maybe create that routine or master that routine because you care about health. And that's, that's probably true. Uh, that trigger and challenge was there. But if you really want to constantly stay as a person who's innovative to honor your statements, then you should be actually walking your talk. Don't just say that, you know, if you're truly, I, I go back to this as well. I had a mentor once who told me about this, I think way back in high school, for, and for some reason it never left me, is that the word of being humble technically cannot happen if you don't have your expertise. You've got to be really, really, really good at something, and to be really, really good at something, you have to take the time to learn and master and care. And that's only when you're like, oh, that wasn't a big deal. And like being humble is only actually possible because you actually put in the good work and people see that you're actually doing good, but you're not talking. If you're not good and saying, oh, that was not a big deal. I'm like, yeah, we know it's not a big deal. <laughs> you a good job. <laughs> so don't say you're innovative. Like I think like rather the moment you think about it, take that the time to make it who you are as a person. And yeah, people will clearly see that you are innovative, but it's not because you started a company. You created an innovative product. That's great. And congratulations. That's amazing. But that does not automatically translate that you're innovative for life. Can you let our listeners know where they can learn more about your work? You have a book out called Rethink Creativity, where they can find that, where they can find Innovators Box and get in touch with you. Yeah. So uh, I'm a big uh, I LinkedIn person. So uh, you can certainly reach out to me there. Uh, say hello, reach out, and then just make sure you you found it through this podcast so that I know I can send, shout out, send a uh, shout out. And then also um, you can certainly go to our website at www.innovatorsbox.com. Um, my book, Rethink Creativity, which I'm super excited for you to get a hold of and find your own way of building your creative culture uh, in your own teams and companies. Uh, you can find that in Amazon and probably a lot of the other digital places too. And if you have any questions, just uh, drop me a note. I'm also on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, but LinkedIn is usually the fastest way or you. Yeah. Now to wrap up, we will each give our answer to today's topic question, top line takeaways. The topic is, was how do you build a culture of innovation? So I really like a lot of the points you were hitting on to me. You know, my big takeaway from this was how does how you think about yourself translate to how you're communicating with other people. Because if you have this rigid way of thinking about yourself, the work you're doing, the work your company is doing, it's going to transpose onto how you talk about it to your employees, your colleagues, you know, general people in your network. Versus if you've got a different opinion of what you're doing, you, know, you look at yourself in a little, little bit more creative light, creative acts start to come out, creative communication comes out. You start to build that creative habits, which leads to innovation. Monica, how do you build a culture of innovation? Everything he said. And <laughs> <laughs> just uh, think about culture is only possible when it's built through people and thought through long term. You can't impose a culture by just having nice ping pong tables. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> or other fancy perks such as like free snacks that could help 
make yeah, them fear does not equal innovation <laughs> i'm sorry no no uh what really creates innovation is rather maybe what social maybe gathering spaces you created as a result of that not because it's not because of the beer it's because what the actions people took after it so you it's not that the beer is the solution and i know at times well i have all these other companies we don't want to lose our talent that's a whole other conversation but like go back to your essence like if you're attracting people because of the beer, then you're probably hiring the wrong people. <laughs> um, so think about what culture, you know, it connects back to who you are as a person. And especially for leaders, don't, don't try to rush it and try to get this answer. Um, go back to your vision, why you were first excited to start your company and think about who you are as a person and why you uniquely you are the right person. And that's going to help you remember again why you were curious. What's the curiosity you want your team and your company to remember, no matter how big or small. And as you continue to build that, that's going to help you practice your creative thinking and encourage and help your teams see how you walk the talk. Monica Kang, founder, CEO of Innovators Box, author of Rethink Creativity and former nuclear <laughs> non <laughs> expert scientist whatever we call it thank you for joining the show today thank you for having me this was fun that wrapped up our conversation did you the listener enjoy this episode if so the absolute best compliment you can give is a rating and review on itunes ratings and reviews help more people find the show therefore more people can discover their inner awesome and if you want to extend that compliment further while you're leaving that review go ahead and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you listen, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or the various other networks in which you can find this show. For full show notes, references, and resources, as well as access to the over 100-episode archive, visit the podcast official site, www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. And remember, for tips, strategies, and ideas on how to build up your company's hype with a message that sings, visit StartupHypeMan.com. Season 10's theme song is from Sir the Baptist. The song is called Dance with the Devil. It is off his album Saint or Sinner, which you can grab on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, and anywhere else digital music is distributed. That'll tie a bow on this one. Thank you again to this week's guest for joining us. I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to Startup Hype Man's Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today. This dance with the devil go. Tell me what you gonna do. Oh, this dance with the devil go. And if you can't get a loose, then it's, it's a dance with the devil.